Well, I'd like to welcome everybody here this evening. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I teach in the International Relations Department here. The International Relations Department is hosting this event. Uh, I'm also the director of the new U.S. Center uh, at the LSC. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to have, um, to be chairing uh, this event and really to have an opportunity to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Peter Katzenstein. Every now and then when you invite a speaker in, uh, you get somebody who really needs very little by way of uh, introduction, and Peter certainly fits that bill. Uh, faculty uh, here tonight um, know this uh, as well as I do. Many of us have drawn on Peter's research uh, and uh, and assign his books uh, in our courses. Uh, but for the benefit of those of you in the room who don't know Peter's work, let me just say a few short words about him before turning things over. Um, so Peter teaches at Cornell University, where he's the Walter S. Carpenter Professor of International Studies. He's the author, co-author, co-editor, editor of, I was counting them up, there's like over two dozen um, books, well over uh, 80 articles uh, and chapters. He's won numerous awards over the course of his career from uh, the Helen Dwight Reed Dissertation Award when he was uh, just coming out uh, onto the market to the Woodrow Wilson Book Prize. And fittingly, I think since he's here at the LSE tonight, the Susan Strange Award, uh, which is uh, awarded by the International Studies Association in recognition of a scholar who, in quotes, whose singular intellect, assertiveness, and insight most challenge conventional wisdom and intellectual and organizational complacency in the International Studies Association. Indeed, Peter is known for his enormous intellectual energy, his commitment to intellectual pluralism, and his willingness to challenge first-order assumptions. He's also known for something else uh, on the American side, on the, on the other side of uh, the pond, a deep, long-standing commitment uh, to teaching. Um, not only has he received uh, multiple uh, teaching awards over the course of his career, um, but I think even more impressively, I mean, it just it blew me away when I was counting them up. Um, he's supervised over 75 Ph.D. Uh, theses in his career, and in our line of work, that is a very big number. Um, and many of these students have gone on to become really high-profile scholars in their own right, um, teaching in areas that are as disparate as Peter's own wide-ranging interests, which run from international security to comparative political economy to the regional politics of Europe and Asia. Um, there's something special about tonight um, as well. This is something of a homecoming for Peter. Um, after completing his BA at Swarthmore and before going on to do uh, his PhD at Harvard, uh, he came to the LSE to do an MSc in international relations. Uh, it was a quiet time. It was in the late 1960s. Um, uh, and I imagine um, that, like many of you, Peter sat in this theater listening to what other bright minds um, 
had to say about what was happening in the larger world. So, Peter, it's, uh, it's what the great Yankee catcher Yogi Berra might say. It's deja vu all over again. It's really great to have you here at the LSE. Please join me in welcoming Peter Katzenstein. It should be all sunny. I got a machine here, but what am I supposed to do? While he figures that out, let me say they put on this lectern the London School of Economics and Political Science Guide to Chairing Public Meetings in the Event of Disorder. <laughs> now, this does take me back to my year, okay? because I watched Mark Rudd, who was a student leader at Columbia, and read Danny, who was a student leader in Paris, and 25 other people here, I was sitting up there, the BBC in the room, and it was raucous. There were no guidelines. Okay? <laughs> so if you disrupt, we have full, uh, we have a full machinery how to do this. What do I do now? They're coming. With They're me. coming. Okay, good. So the, Su- the Susan Strange Award, this is not how Susan Strange would have framed it. She would have said... <laughs> The Susan Strange Award is given to the person who most pisses off his or her colleagues for the year, okay? That's what it was about. She was a remarkable person. I never studied with her here. I studied with, uh, uh, well, my, my tutor was uh, Taylor, Paul Taylor. And at that time, he was, later on became the uh, had, uh Paul had a family of two and he had to do what young faculty members have to do now. He had to move to Southampton or to Antarctica or something <laughs> in order to be able to make a living, right? Uh, uh, American graduate students in the late 60s were still getting, not myself, but others, were getting fellowships which were higher than those of a senior lecturer's salary. And at that time, a senior lecturer was working 20 to 25 hours in terms of individual tutorials and this group teaching. So to the extent that you're all having a very rough time, it was a rough time then. Okay. And now comes the clicker. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. But it was a very happy year for me because um, I, I studied with Karl Popper. I mean, that was the main benefit of being here. There were, I don't know, 4,000 courses and so Lakatosh and Papa were on the faculty. I never dreamt of studying philosophy or social science. But here was the IR I sort of could figure out. That wasn't so hard. I took my, my exams in that field. But, but I did take seminars in philosophy. I took seminars in econometrics. I learned econometrics here. Uh, and I learned how to program in Fortran. Those were all the side benefits of a sterling social science faculty. And at that time, LSE was very small. We were talking almost 50 years ago. It was only three buildings, I think. And working hours were relaxed. There were two tea breaks in the morning, and many of the senior faculty quit at 3.30 and had their beer down the road. I mean, it was, by American standards, quite relaxed. And I take it that has changed. So this is different now, right? But it was a good year. I totally enjoyed it, and I lived next to the Arsenal pitch and got also um, interested in soccer, English soccer. I knew I was interested in soccer before. 
And to the extent that you're making an exit at 7.30, I'm with you, okay? Uh, the match starts at 7.45, so. <laughs> All right, so to the business at hand. Now, if I click something, it's going to happen? You, you do the first click. There's always an honorary click by somebody. Okay, which one do I click? Uh, you got it. The right one? The right one. Wonderful. We're in business. Okay. So this is a project, or this talk builds on a project which is ongoing. I got interested in this topic in 1993, when, like many of my colleagues, I read a famous article by Sam Huntington, and it sat in my throat for about 15 years. I knew it was wrong, and in a book which I published in 1996, I wrote a few pages, but I didn't know how to think about it. Uh, but it percolated, and then in 2008, I said, I think I'm ready, and then I organized a panel, and they said, that's interesting. And so I did a book, and then I said, oh, that was a book on civilizations. Okay, I'll do another one on cynicization, and I'll do another one on Anglo-America. And this lecture is on that, those three sets of books, all edited volumes, but I put in five long chapters. And I'm not yet done. I have one book on civilization, single-authored in my head, which I want to write in the next four years. So here are president and professor, and they think the same way. Sam Huntington, I very much respect. Okay, I think he is a, was, was a superb scholar. I didn't know him well, but I knew him. And I wished we could have had a chance to argue about it, uh, but he was very ill at that time, and that didn't happen. Chinese presidents come and go. They are all Huntingtonians. Okay. So, by the way, are all Chinese students I talked to. So here's my disagreement with Huntington. Um, Huntington's map, as you can see, colors the world into different civilizations, and some of them are difficult to classify, but what matters is that the colors are monochrome. That is, civilizations for Huntington are unified. And for me, civilizations are internally divided. And secondly, for Huntington, modernity, in whatever form you think about it, is irrelevant. And I make a big deal about saying that the civilizations are embedded in a larger context. And we want to know why I do this. I got the basic idea from Marshall Hodgson, who is the founder of modern Islamic studies in the United States. He wrote three monumental volumes. He died at the age of 46. He's one of the great, great scholars in the United States in the last century. And Hodgson, as a student of Islam, thinks globally. And he thinks of Islam as stretching from Indonesia to Senegal, not just in the Middle East. And so the civilization, my concept, is embedded in a global context. So are civilizations combative and clashing, or are they plural and pluralist? Uh, are they defined by core values, Huntington's position, or are they defined by multiple traditions, my position? Is the world made up of cultural realism, which is Huntington's position. He recognizes the plurality of the world, but not its domestic pluralism. 
Or is the world made up of cosmopolitan liberals? They see the domestic pluralism, but they don't recognize that it's a plural world. It's, in fact, teleologically built to be a liberal world. This is what liberals have argued for the last 150 years, always talking English, always in a loud voice, and it hasn't turned out that way. Okay. So some of, I could return to especially this liberalism theme at the end. So if you want to locate civilization analysis, you have to think about how do we think about the world? Well, it locates above the nation state. It locates where we locate globalization or internationalization. So globalization is a set of processes which reconfigure sovereignty. And often these processes interact with localization. So the Toyota globalization production form is, in fact, a way of thinking about the world. And globalization is about the constitutive aspects of politics, remaking identities and processes. This is the preferred frame at a social science university like the London School of Economics for sociologists and anthropologists. Internationalization is something quite different. This is a preferred language, conceptual language, of students of politics and economics. And the Latin root means it means something between nations. And the nations, their constitutive characteristics are not challenged. What happens is there's an increasing social density of exchange across borders, trade, capital, persons, information, whatever. So if you think about examples, what people are saying, yeah, let's study all these different kinds of capitalism that you have. They're embedded in an international set of market relationships. And we've got to figure out regulatory processes so that the different actors, corporations or multinational or transnational corporations or states, sort of lower the costs when they interact with one another. And then there are civilizations, again, in this level above the nation state, communities of meanings and practices, not communities of power. That would be reducing civilizations to actors, which is what Huntington does in his book. First two chapters on civilization, but after that, civilizations act. I think that's not quite right. So here's what I want to do in the talk, talk about civilization analysis, talk about Anglo-America, talk about applications of this to balances of practice and power, and conclude. So how do we think about civilization? What are the kinds of things one would look at in order to define, not in an essentialist way, but at least in sort of a pragmatic way, what, what to look at? Well, civilizations tend to be urban-based in history. The emperor steals from the peasant. And at a large scale, and peasants, in order to escape this, move up the mountains. About 600 yards will do it for you in Southeast Asia and in the Mediterranean. Then the emperor can't steal. Okay? They are defined by language, a community of language, of which Rome, you know, Latin, covered about 24% of the language, relevant language community in in the European Eurasian, uh, Western Eurasian area, which is roughly what English is now. 
That is, having 400 million Chinese speak English helps a great deal to make English a lingua franca. But many people say that's about the, ba- the top part. It will now fragment into various forms of pidgin English. That's happening already, especially in South Asia. Literature, a body of literature to which you refer, and religion. Religion both of a traditional religious kind, but also secular religion. So the United States, a straight separation between church and state, but united by a secular religion. All you have to go is to the Washington Mall and you see it in action. Okay. Secondly, civilizations are embedded in a larger context, or ecumene, the term for martial hardship. And if there's one article which, you know, if you're interested in this subject, you want to read one article, not more, because you can spend your lifetime reading on it, it's a book review by William McNeil, who, was, who wrote a very famous book, The Rise, no, not The Rise of the West, something about the West, 1962. The first global historian at the University of Chicago. And in 1990, in the first issue of the first volume of the Journal of Global History, they asked him to review his own book. Okay? And it, it's a wonderful piece of scholarship, dispassionate, incisive, smart. And the bottom line is, he says, it's a pretty good book. <laughs> but I missed the vital point. And the vital point was that I didn't talk or listen to Marshall Hodgson before I wrote the book. That is, I thought, like Huntington, there's this civilization, the West, and there's some other civilization I'm not focusing on. But Hodgson told me that the West, the way I conceived of it, and the way I conceive it now in 1990, says William McNeil, is embedded in something larger. And if you don't get that, you don't understand civilizational politics. Thirdly, civilizations are not actors. They are complexes. They are contexts, contexts of meanings. Okay. But they're not acting. To give them agentic properties mistakes what it is. States are actors, groups are actors, individuals are actors. Civilizations are not actors. So think of civilization not as a voice in our head which tells us what to do, which is what hunting has, this unity model, but as a town hall meeting in which you are arguing about our options. That's what makes civilizations interesting. If you can't talk about your options... It's a boring place. So in the 15th century, if you were an intellectual in Europe, you wanted to be as close to the border to Islam as possible on southern Spain. You couldn't escape. You were under the Spanish Inquisition. That was pretty boring. Okay? The action was in the world of Islam. Uh, if you were living in the ancient Western world, you wanted to be in Athens, not in Rome. Rome was boring. It had the power. It had conquered Greece. The action was in the academies in Athens because that's where the disagreements were. So that's a very important part of civilizational politics. What makes civilizations interesting is not agreement but disagreement. So wherever I have looked, I saw multiplicities in these civilizations. Well, look at China or Anglo-America or abstractly. Multiplicities of actors for sure. In my discipline, people say the state is the basic unit of analysis. I said, that's not why I'm seeing. I'm seeing empires. I see states. I see pooled sovereignty polities. Britain is still one of them. 
part of uh, uh, the EU. I see stateless polities. The Ummah might be an example, that Islamic community. I see diasporic politics, not polities, diasporic politics, okay? all over the world, whether that is Jews or Chinese or Indian. Uh, it's wrong to reduce it all to the world of states or to lump the non-state together and then say that's, that makes you understand the world. I think that's right. Multiple actors on the private side, multinational corporations. They're different from transnational corporations. Coalitions, groups, organizations, movements, individuals, all these things which my students read about, get excited about, write about, which don't make it into the textbooks of international relations in the Westphalian system, which is run by states. Multiple traditions and institutions at the LSE, at Cornell, in Britain, in the United States, every place. Lots of different kinds of processes. The only thing I don't see is Orientalism versus Occidentalism. That, that's the one reification with which our public media and ourselves often orient ourselves. But it doesn't exist. It's made up, and it's politically pernicious. So how do these civilizational complexes relate to each another? They surely relate through clashes. That does occur. Uh, I think uh, Toynbee had an inventory of outcomes, how civilization relate to one another, and he came up with 24. And one of them was clash. So it makes no sense to deny the validity of clashes, but to write only about one of 24 means that you've given in to your publisher, who always will insist on shopping up the message. Okay? And hunting shopping a lot. And the book became an intellectual and an international bestseller. 39 languages. Well, I wish my work was translated into 39 languages. But I think it's wrong-headed. So, in forms of cultural imperialism, you impose content and form. But more typical is trans-civilizational engagement or hybridization. Most often hybridization. I just went to the British Museum, looked at the exhibit on the Australian Aborigines. Well, long-term trade, just as you find around the Indian Ocean. Surely warfare, too, but long-term trade. Okay? A very important part. So let's move to Anglo-America. The existing understanding of the term focuses on Anglo-American singularity in two forms. The most important foundational book written in the last half century is Louis Hodge's The Liberal Tradition in America. And the most important thing about this is the singular. Tradition, not traditions. Hodge was unifying what scholars before him had seen as multiple traditions. And he said, yeah, it's a liberal tradition. There is some variation be between it, but it's basically one thing. Uh, Huntington subscribed to the same view. In his writings in the 1970s and in his last book, Who Are We?, which was not a great success. Now, there's a second view, which I find more plausible, which is America's multiple traditions. And it's surely that tradition, and this is revival of this perspective is associated with the name of Roger Smith, who is a political theorist at uh, University of Pennsylvania. For sure, liberalism is part of that set of traditions. But so is republicanism with a small r, not republicanism with a capital r. And most importantly, so is race 
It's very hard to think about the United States and not think about race. This turns out to be important not just for the United States, but for the Anglo-American civilization. So how many Wests are there when we talk about the West in the singular? Well, there's the Anglosphere. That's what it was called in the 19th century. Or Anglo-America. That's what it's called after 1945. But of course, that's, that's one part. What about the Americas? Now we're talking about North and South America and Central America together. What about Europe and America as the West? And if you go and ask people in the Middle East or India and Moscow or Beijing or Tokyo, what do you mean? You'll get very different answers. But to lump it all together seems to me highly implausible. Just as it seems to me highly implausible to lump the East together, to make China, Russia and Eurasia, Japan and India the East. I mean, what, what a simplified... What a simplification of a complicated territory by a very simple-minded map. We've got to get it wrong because the map is just too simplistic. So in the 19th century, Anglo-America stood for empire, liberalism, and race. That was its core. And it wasn't debated. That was what people believed it was. And uh, you can read it in the literature. You can see it on the theater stage. It's in novels. In the history, it's very clear. This is not what it means after 1945. Instead, it means a liberal security community in which you have complex sovereignties in Anglo-America, shared diplomatic cultures, like special relationships. Uh, and if you reflect on that, it seems like what was the core of Anglo-America in the late 19th century, by the end of the second third of the middle of the 20th century had been exchanged for something totally different. That is, the core of Anglo-America is utterly plastic. It's like the Wizard of Oz. There's no there there. And in this, Anglo-America is just like China. I've stopped counting how many versions of neo-Confucianism there are. I think we're at number four or number five by now. Why? It gets reinvented it gets readjusted because of these multiple traditions, which are in, always in conflict. That's true in China. It's true in Anglo-America. So does Anglo-America have a particular view of international relations? Yes. And I report this with embarrassment because I miseducated for 40 years, basically, hundreds of Cornell undergraduates because I taught from the, from the Westphalian book. That is, Anglo-America is organized around the concept of race. The settlers in Australia, I just saw in the British Museum, who arrived in 1788, I think, they're white. They feel at home in London. Even though they're convicts, they feel, ah, we understand London, we'd like to be there, even though it's 7,000 miles away or whatever it is. They fear the people in the bush who are 200 yards away from the beach are foreign, scary, unknowable. So the Anglo-American view of international relations is Lockean. It thinks in terms of transnational security communities. This is very different from how we think about international relations in the Hobbesian paradigm as a state of anarchy. Why? because of the importance of race in the liberalism of the Anglo-American world. 
In the Westphalian world, it's just the opposite. Because of religion and nationalism, the external world is threatening, while the internal world is sort of friendly. You understand your co-patriots, your co-religionists. So the principle of anarchy, 30 years war on the European continent, has organized our way of thinking about world politics, which is antithetical to how international relations works in Anglo-American civilization. So the, grow, the story of the growth of the civilizations beyond the English-speaking people, which was the history of Churchill Road, is really a story of military conquest, market penetration, and cultural insinuation. And in the 20th century, it recorded two enormous victories, Germany and Japan, the two countries who posed the most determined challenge to that world, the civilization of Anglo-America. And Germany and Japan didn't turn out to be Anglo-American, but they are part of the family. And this is a remarkable, noteworthy outcome. Just think about you know, Cannon's famous telegram in 1947 signed by Mr. X, in which he sort of thinks about what would be the strategy for the United States for the next duration of decades of the Cold War. And he said, well, thinking like a good geopolitician of the 19th century, Western Europe and East Asia, most importantly, Germany and Japan, they've got to be on our side. So we've got to make sure that it turns out this way. And it did turn out that way. So the question for the 21st century is whether this will be true of China and Russia. And this is a very open question. Based on the record of the 20th century, you wouldn't be totally pessimistic about it, but based on especially the depth of resilience of Chinese civilization and political and market power, you wouldn't be totally optimistic either. Russia is a more complicated, but I think in the end simpler story. So Anglo-America hasn't lost a big war in 300 years. They lost some small ones, but not a big one. That's a remarkable accomplishment. So the American and the U.S. imperium, which we are living under, is expressing logics of globalization international, and internationalization. When I tell my undergrads that the United States has an imperium, they say, no, 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 this cannot be right. We are a good country. And I say, no, no, I didn't say that we have an empire. I said we have an imperium. That is, we have non-territorial and territorial power. And they said, we have territorial power? I said, yeah, we have about 700 bases. They said, wow, that's a large number. I said, yeah, that is a large number. 50 major ones, okay? Uh, but to deny the existence of that traditional instrument of power politics is denying evidence. So that's very clear. Like the British Empire... The United States, and now I call it America, has a non-territory empire. Let's just call it the non-territory empire of pop culture and technology. Britain had this aspect too, but American society is much more dynamic and much more voracious, driven by profit. Uh, it insists and always has and always will, as I can see, on unrestricted access to economy and society abroad. And these other societies and economies aren't, especially the elites, aren't very willing to do it. And this creates a big fight. Uh, 
And then as a third part of this, of course, because America is so special and so exceptional and so unique, Americans are forever saying an exemption for us because we are an exception. Whether that is trade, whatever it is, the Americans will always want to get a free ride, right? Because they're so much better than anybody else. God's chosen country. And that, of course, most people around the world don't particularly like that. So what about the international relations of the United States over the last 50, 60 years? A very clear strategic sense, as I indicated, by Canon, but extremely consistently executed by U.S. foreign policy. Focus on Western Europe and East Asia. And the rise of China simply reaffirms the importance of that. Uh, and for reasons of energy politics, the Middle East, and for reasons of religion. So Israel and Saudi Arabia are enormously important pivotal powers in the Middle East for the United States. Uh, they are not as pliable as Germany and Japan, uh, and they are very different. Uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the remaining feudal powers in the world, and it wages war against the United States. I mean, jihadism, after all, was 9-11 was not an accident. The way 1914 was not an accident. Saudi Arabia had exported 20,000 jihadists in the previous 20 years. This time they made it to the United States. And Israel is very different because it's a 51st state of the United States. You can't get elected president if you don't have Israel on your side. Barack Obama thought about it for about 30 seconds in 2008. Didn't take him much longer than that, okay? And you can just see the whole story of the last several months is a wonderful case study of this. Latin America, South Asia, and Africa are unimportant, but they don't rank as high. That's quite consistent. Whether this will change remains to be seen. Now, there is one place where the United States and the American really did have an empire, European style, Central America. If you look at what Central America looks like now, all you can conclude is having an empire may be good for the imperial power. It is terrible for those who suffer from it. Central America is a disaster. Unconstrained American power is as bad in Central America as unconstrained French power was in Africa. As unconstrained power is any place, Germany and Eastern Europe, Britain and South Asia, you name it. So... This world of regional orders is not the old imperial world, with the exception of Central America. That's sort of the magic. The magic is that America is the central power in the world because it is a player in every region, but it doesn't dictate outcomes. It's an important player in all regions. That's left the regions to figure out their own regional orders, with America and the United States being part of it. In domestic politics, I'll be very brief, Three patterns of internal pluralism. Race is important. I'm putting Mexico in here because it's part of North America. New Zealand is the most interesting case dealing with race because it's in the process of moving from an official form of biculturalism to an emerging form of triculturalism. That's, I think, you know, Turkey, New Zealand, there are a few countries where I think important things are happening. Uh, So this is really interesting. And then there's, of course, Canada and Australia, where you get very principled conflicts over multiculturalism and where you get very pragmatic compromises. Deeply admirable how they deal 
with their uh, with the indigenous population. I just went to the not not here. I went two weeks ago to the new American Indian Museum in on the Mall in Washington D.C. and uh, you know they installed a new permanent exhibit of the treaties between the United States and the Indians, starting with the Elder Penn Treaty of 1683 or whatever. That, by the way, was the only treaty which was not broken within two years. Every other treaty was broken within two or three years. The the American Indian population suffered terribly, and the movie which they're showing there ends with the following thing. It says, you know, we are not claiming that there was a holocaust. There was a holocaust. That's on the mall in the United States. Okay. I was stunned, so I asked, why are the Republicans screaming? It turns out that the people in charge of the exhibits are actually the American Indians, not the Republican Congress. So, so let's then look at balances of practice and power. Practices are very important because you can see how communities organize themselves. And power... I want to think about the way we think about power normally to control somebody through coercion, through institutions, or through structural constraints, but also power which circulates, which is polycentric, which is not easily captured from the top. Here are some case studies. Law. So in the period of American primacy, you get a new way of thinking about law. It's called law and economics. And it has had profound influence, especially in Europe. So I looked at something called international commercial arbitration. This used to be a gentleman's club run by European lawyers. It's now litigational, totally changed, favoring adversarial training. So something in the legal profession came around and said, yeah, the American way isn't so bad. The practice changed. But not all legal practices. When I grew up, the model constitution was the American constitution. But constitutional law doesn't look to the United States at all. I mean, the United States is as important in constitutional law as, I don't know, Madagascar. Okay? The action in constitutional law is in South Africa and Canada. That's, what South, that's where constitutional lawyers go. And... <coughs> So law is not a field in which something happens, one thing happens. Law is a field in which many things happen. It circulates around numerous nodes. Europe, for example, is leading the judicialization of global politics. That is, courts which make binding decisions. It's also leading the world in legally binding liberalization of global finance. People always think that financial globalization is a product of the avarice of Wall Street. Wrong. It's, in fact, the product of French and German cooperation saying, we need a system of rules because American banks are not bound by rules. And so they come up with a set of rules, and then the Germans say, we've got to put this into every treaty which we ever will sign from now on. And that universalizes financial globalization. It wasn't anything the Americans did. The Americans wanted to have bilateral relations because they would be the strongest with any other partner. Was the Europeans insisted we got to be rule-bound because they were the weaker ones. Uh, and then you look at balances of power after 9-11, for example, national security law. It goes up and down between the 
UN Security Council and regional and national levels, up and down. Or you look at how law is built in Asia through legal syncretism and innovation. They don't want to choose between European common and uh, uh, civil law. They say, nah, that's not a big difference. In the Western world, it's a big difference. But for us, it's not a big difference. We can get a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and we have our own legal tradition. It's fusion cooking in the legal kitchen of Asia. So there are clear failures and successes. For example, the United States has, since the 1950s, forever, under the auspices of the State Department, had a program for exporting the rule of law, including into the province of Anbar as late as 2008. Already by the 1970s, legal scholars looking at it and saying, this is not working. But that doesn't stop us, the United States. We go on doing it like it's written into our, into our DNA. It doesn't work. There are other programs which are mixtures of success and failure. Democracy promotion, uh, promotion through the World Bank, for example. Some failure stories, some <laughs> success stories. And there are success stories, particularly the export of private law through foundations and NGOs. You can see this in Eastern Europe and China. Through law schools, very important. Through mega law firms. All the, I mean, 19 of the top 20 mega law firms in the world are U.S. Right. So if you look at the domain of law, you see that is an outcome in which there is not one country or one civilization setting the tone. It's, in fact, a system of polycentric innovation and circulatory power. Here's a second example. The movie industry. So I'm writing on this, you know, and I got interested because Hollywood is really big in the international market. 60, 70, 80 percent of market outlets filled by Hollywood movies. Okay. And Hollywood is full of shrinks. Everybody there is just psyched out. Why? Because they don't know what's going to happen, where the next job is coming from, whether that movie is going to make money or not. Nobody has a clue. Titanic, you know, made a lot of money. Nobody knew when it happened. Why? Well, Indian teenagers like to see it seven times. Well, that wasn't pro- you couldn't predict that, right? So radical uncertainty. So you develop a strategy of making blockbusters, you know, to cover a lot of losses in your other, in your other movies. Who determines it? Global viewing publics, not American publics any longer. It's global. And of course, in this industry, there's not just Hollywood. There's Bollywood. There's Nollywood. That's Nigeria. The growth of the Nigerian movie industry to the second most important industry in terms of employment in Nigeria occurs in 25 years. These things happen very fast. So the Nollywood caters to to an African market. It's being imitated in Kenya. It's imitated in many places in Africa now. Bollywood is actually not happening. I mean, Bombay is no longer the center. There There are 20 centers in South Asia which are doing this, and of course it's trying to capture now the the Hollywood market. Again, the outcome is polycentric innovation. And finance. This is something which the United States and American bankers are very uh, proud of, as Wall Street, like the city here, you know. Uh, I just read that uh, you have four hedge fund managers making more than a billion pounds, or euros, I don't know, whatever it is. Some obscene number, okay. Uh, 
So this is the world of finance is a world of risk and uncertainty. Keynes and Knight write about this conceptual distinction in the 1920s and 1930s, risk around probability uh, and uncertainty about things where did there no, were there no probability distributions. So epistemic uncertainty describes the incompleteness of our knowledge about the world. And this was very clear to Keynes in the world of finance. So there are people like Soros and Solo, you know, one is a very successful hedge fund manager who cost the British Treasury two billion pounds, I think, in 1992. It's quite a story, okay? Uh, and the other one is Robert Soloff says, he's a peasant, he doesn't understand economics. I'm not sure he's a peasant. So here are some distributions. Here is the Swiss francs always in the market and in the news, right? Here's the daily moves of the Swiss franc. And all you can say is it doesn't look to me like a probability distribution. Okay? That is somewhere to the right-hand side, you, know, you go 80 to 100-fold off in terms of magnitude of what you would expect in terms of uh, currency fluctuations. So you don't know how to deal. How do you make currency transaction when you look at this? You can't develop models based on risk. So you categorize events. You classify them because you've got to make decisions. Here's another set of uh, curves. They don't look like a probability curve to me. Dutch and American uh, yield curves over two and 400 years, they look rather different. So finance doesn't fit this model of a, of a world of probability. Here the, here the thing which blew up the economy in 2008, you know, the risk management models, which everybody looked to, and they were off by 20,000%. I mean, a sophomore in Cornell, it's a failing grade, okay? But they don't serve the purpose of describing reality. They serve the purpose as a convention to make it possible for people who have to wager big to say, we're doing it responsibly. We're not just throwing the money away. So it's not stupidity. I don't think it's even cupidity. It's conventions which we use in order to transform uncertainty into risk, quantifiable risk. And when the Queen came here and uh, you opened that new building in November 2008, she asked, how the hell did this happen under the watch of the London School of Economics? Uh, embarrassed silence, and then they say, we'll come back, mother, and uh, they came up with things like systemic risk and other things. Okay, Quite right. But they were speechless, as were the American economists. So something happens in these financial markets, and it isn't controlled. It happens in part because of innovative financial practices. It happens in part because of the co-evolution of control efforts or lack of control efforts, that is regulation or deregulation by governments, and profit-seeking individuals and corporations. So let me conclude. There are two kinds of arguments in the social sciences. The one which is always held up as the you know, as, as, the, as the only one, is clinching and scientific proof. This, I think, is very important in the social sciences, but it's not the only argument, not the only way of thinking about it. There's also vouching for an argument and pattern recognition. 
And this talk is based on vouching and pattern recognition. Uh, there are also two kinds of futures we all, always contemplate. One is recurrent sameness. In my discipline, it's always the same thing. Realists and liberals are always saying, the future will be like the past. Okay? Either it will be horrible, that's the realist prediction, or the liberals saying, no, no, it's not going to be horrible, it's going to be a liberal future, it will be wonderful. Okay? In civilization analysis, it's really what you're focusing on is novelty. And what Apia calls contaminated cosmopolitanism. It's what I think is shown in the past, and I think that's the world we live in. So Anglo-America and Islam in this world of multiple civilization have a particular position. And Anglo-America in particular, it has a particular relationship to the civilization of modernity. Uh, through language, everybody wants to learn English. Just look at the end of the Cold War and what happened in Eastern Europe. No French, no German, no Russian. English, 70, 75, 80%. is the choice of the first foreign language, and the same in Asia. Secondly, the rights revolution. The rights revolution is something which you know, has accelerated greatly since 1947, 1948, and in particular since 1990. It is something which cannot be returned. I think it's impossible to stuff it back in the bottle and say, oh, it's not going to happen again. I think the rights revolution is here. Science and technology, that's been a long-term story since the 18th century. And Britain and now America are very good at it. And then for the American part of Anglo-America, the simple fact of being an enchanting new world. No other civilization is the new world with a capital N and a capital W. Only America. It's a white brand. I mean, when I went there, as a, right after high school, you know, I thought my image of America was blonde girls, volleyball, ice cream on the beach. Yeah, I found that, but there wasn't America. But everybody makes up their own America. And this is an incredibly subversive and dangerous image and dream to have. It threatens all political elites all over the world. So this is something very important. And it dates back all the way to the third letter which Columbus wrote to the emperor of Spain. He said, I've arrived. America is like a ripe pear with a nipple turned upwards towards heaven. Have you ever wanted to have religion and sex in one sentence? That's it. Okay. <laughs> so Islam is a special civilization too, but it's not a vertical connection. It's, it's geographic spread which occurs within the civilization of modernity. And the era we are living in is one of intra-Islamic conflicts about how to make that work. And to focus only on the Middle East or the Arabian Peninsula and say that's Islam is a big mistake. Islam is much more capacious and with many more optimistic uh, stories to tell than ISIS. And of course, there are other civilizations <laughs> which I don't want to talk about here. What about the civilization of modernity? How do we think about it? So my sense is from having read broadly around it, you know, here is Brock, who talks about Rome, not Athens or Jerusalem. He says Rome was a transmission culture. They built good aqueducts, but they didn't have a message. 
And I said, well, it's not bad to provide the Internet, okay, uh, for whatever reason, to provide the conduits of exchange. That is what Rome did. And it also made everybody a citizen, by the way, which uh, we haven't gotten that way. In popular culture in Japan, Iwabuchi, who is one of the leading scholars of this, talks about Japanese popular culture industry being so successful only after it has become, and this is his term, odorless. If you can't dis- find anything Japanese about it, then it will travel. Otherwise, it won't. If you go to China, you know, and you look at educational TV for the kids on Saturday mornings, or at Kansas for that matter, it doesn't really matter, it's brilliantly produced Japanese popular manga, which nothing Japanese about it except this artistic, imaginative, child-captivating technology, visual and narrative. And it's true, I think, of liberalism's thin proceduralism, which is what my former colleague Ernie Haas wrote about. Liberalism in this talk gets quite a rough treatment because it's coupled with race. Uh, But procedural liberalism is something very important, and it's a great advance, I think. But it's thin. It's not thick. So the question to which I have no answer is, are the markets of Anglo-America, are they thin or thick constructs? And I can change my mind on this every night. Global politics, I think, is being fed by two processes. Human well-being, and whatever we mean by it, and we mean a lot of different things by it, and human rights. And we surely disagree about human rights. Any panel discussion between Chinese, American, or Europeans, we have vastly different definitions uh, of human rights. But for the first, the disagreements are no different from the past. What has changed, I think, in the last two generations is that we are finding a common language for articulating the disagreements. That's no mean accomplishment. I take this idea from Chuck Beitz's book on human rights. So no longer is it possible, I think, to impose a single standard of conduct on the world. This is what liberals always want to do. Okay? I don't think this is possible. The world is too complicated because of these different kinds of civilizations. And it is no longer possible to simply accept all inhumane political practices as cultural realists like Sam Hunting would want to do. I think it's not possible because of the human rights revolution. So we live in an era in which some things are really new, a common language for disagreement, and not the kind of imperialism saying that there's one right way, and not the kind of relativism would say anything goes. Thank you. Peter, thanks very much. Uh, we'll open it up. Um, if you want to pose a question, if you just provide your name and institutional affiliation, if you'd like. We'll start right down here. Hold on one second, and you'll get the mic. Thank you very much. Um, Robin Hanna, I'm a graduate of the International Relations Department way back in the 60s. Um, I did a wonderful talk. I've just got uh, 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 an answer. I'm, I'm a man called Arnold Wolfers. I think he's longer with us. Uh, he actually, I mentioned him because he actually was born in St. Gallen and died in St. Gallen. I was at school there, but he did make a lot of different theories about a particular Anglo-American approach to foreign affairs, international relations. And um, I wonder if you probably have heard of him and have anything to say about his relevance to what he'd discussed. 
Or is this Martin Booth? Arnold Wolfers. Arnold Wolfers. Have you Arnold Wolfers. Arnold Wolfers. Well, remember Arnold. He was a very distinguished scholar of international relations, and this uh, quote and collaboration has a wonderful distinction between possession goals and milieu goals. So if you wanted to take that distinction and put it into this talk, you'd say, I've been talking about milieu goals, the international milieu, fashioned by the interaction between globalization, internationalization, and civilization. Okay. Possession goals is what corporations, states, individuals, coalitions want. And so my story would be, yeah, you've got to look at the intersection between the two. It's a hand back there. Uh, Bernard, Bernard Herman, uh, thanks so much for an excellent talk. It does seem to be somewhat incongruous that the Anglo-American culture has such internal contradictions between a growing proportion of population on food stamps in the United States or welfare in this country and a, t a 1% or so who are proverbially breaking away from the mass of a population. Do you believe that the Anglo-American culture can, can continue its global dominance or importance when there are such contradictions and differences within their internal body politique? So I think when you label something, you can already predetermine the answer. When you call it contradiction, then you're saying, no, it can't produce, can't, can't persist, right? Because contradictions from Marx means you get to something new. Uh, if you call it stresses and strains, you'd say, yeah, maybe it recalibrate. Okay? So if you think about the progressive period in the United States, 1880 to 1920, it changed the United States. For example, antitrust became a powerful tradition which still exists today, right? And eventually led to FDR. So there are self-correcting mechanisms. But I agree that so far, if you think about the financial crisis, you would have expected more dramatic changes in policy and postures, which hasn't happened, which to me means that the next financial crisis will be bigger and worse than what we lived through 2008. And we will enter it with less political capital for management. That may lead to systemic breakdown revealing this, and, and a new kind of politics, most likely in the United States. But, uh, you know, prediction is, in this world of, unpredicted, of uncertainty, prediction isn't my business. I wouldn't know it. And if I did, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here. I mean, I'd make a lot more money someplace else. Right? So I think, you know, you can conjecture about it. And if you conjecture about it, you know, what strikes me about Anglo-America is an incredible self-regenerative capacity. When other societies get beaten down, they take a whole lot longer than Anglo-America to get back on the horse. Okay. So I, I am not, I'm not one to bet against Anglo-America in that sense. I think the society has, you know, has a lot of internal mechanisms for reviving and changing itself compared to other societies. So... Yeah, you can say inequality. It's a, I called it disgraceful or something terrible up here, you know. I mean, I, th I find it morally repugnant, 
this, you know, this, this amount of pay inequality. And, 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 uh, uh, but you can also say this inequality is a very small price to pay for much superior economic performance. You know, people are always in my country at Cornell bitch and moan about Harvard University. There's such a large endowment, right? Well, or you look at the financial uh, crisis and the disaster it created. But it also created an enormous wealth. The American middle class now is better off than it was before. It's just at the bottom third, a lot of people are not. Right? In America, that's less of a problem because of the ideology. Right? In other societies, this would not work. Robert, right down here, and then I'll come over here. Thank you very much. Uh, Robert Faulkner, International Relations. I was struck by one of your comments. I think it was more on the side where you mentioned that um, you, you had taught international relations the wrong way. And having now developed a more civilizational prism, I wonder, I know we haven't got long, but um, how would you teach international relations through that prism? What would be your starting point? Well, you're asking a very embarrassing question. I'm slated to teach it again in the fall <laughs> after three or four years of taking a leave of absence. And the lazy answer is, I'll summer plug a hole. Okay. Uh, but I think it would, if I was not lazy, and I'm lazy, okay, uh, which I think is a healthy attitude. Uh, uh, if I was not lazy, I think I would teach it as a world of regional orders. That is, it's regional and civilizational complexes which, def which develop their own logic. So take the, take the case of the spying on Germany by the NAS. Okay? Yeah, that was sort of outrageous, and the chancellor was really miffed. Okay? She made it pretty clear. Uh, and then she said, okay, we'd like to join that special network which you have with Australia, Britain, and New Zealand. Okay? And the Americans said, no, you're not. Okay. Well, that was sort of a put-down, right? New Zealand? I mean, come on. Right? Uh, but it reflected the endurance of something. It wasn't just a special relationship with Britain. Right? So I'm sure they're working out some bilateral deal on the side now. You know, the national security agencies are all intertwined. Um, but I would say that rather than talk about the international system, or the global world, I would take the, the message of pluralism to the world of regions and civilizations and make students see that, in fact, if you look at the politics of South Asia or East Asia or now Eurasia, which is becoming an increasingly interesting and, and hot subject, you know, it follows different grammars. But you would, of course, have to specify what it is that you're analyzing. If you're saying, I just analyze something very aggregate, the tendency towards war, very general, or the tendency towards making money, very general, then you don't need that. You would have to specify what the outcomes are which you wanted to explain. But I think it's too much work. So. <laughs> there was a hand over here. Hi. Um, my name is uh, Steve Cooney, and a PhD from the International Relations Department, LSD, in 1975, a long time ago. Um, and my brother-in-law is Bruce Jandelson, who has his Ph.D. Um, in political science from Cornell and was one of your students there. I believe you know him fairly right. well. Right. 
Yeah, and so, the, but the question I have is, and Bruce and I have discussed this many times, um, 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 Bernard Lewis, um, who wrote um, What Went Wrong about Islamic Civilization, um, sort of says that across the Islamic ecumen, um, which you described, I think, rather well, um, there is a sense that, well, I think the, the, the Lewis title sums it up, what went wrong. Somehow they were the, 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 the apex of global civilizations, as perhaps the Anglo-American one is today, the one which influences everyone else, that everyone else must respond to. And somehow they became a backwater. Um, and they're still working out how to respond to it, I guess, is the quickest way to summarize all this. And I just like, and, and I sort of thought that Huntington did try to capture some of that in Clash of Civilizations, and I wondered if you could sort of, you know, just comment a little more, little more in depth on, on, on your view of the Islamic ecumen and how it, is, it's, it's how it sort of fits into this analysis. Thank you. So I'm most taken, of course, I'm most taken by the fact that you're the brother-in-law of Bruce Gentles, and that's <laughs> really quite extraordinary. But, but I'm most taken by you saying, well, and they're still working it out. That seems to be me right, to be right. They are still working it out means they're disagreeing how to do it, right? Uh, so the West was still working it out when the Germans gassed six million Jews in, in Auschwitz. Not a small accident of history. That was the West working it out, right? So let's not over-dramatize the inhumanity in one part of the world, in one history, compared to another part of the world in another history. I mean, I think that's a big mistake. So I think they're working it out. I think this is right. And this may take several generations. So, you know, we are in the United States, in America, in the third revivalist phase of religion, okay, since the 1840s, the third time. Um, well, religion is rising in all parts of the world, including in China, in the form of folk religion. There's only one country in East Asia, Japan, but even there you've got New Age religion. There's only one part of it. It's Western Europe, which is secular. Right? And Europe is now importing religion through Eastern enlargement. Right? After all, the Poles are Catholics, and it, it was a Polish pope who greatly helped bring down the Soviet Union. Right? And, of course, through Islam. Right? So we will be working it out, too. I know in Britain you're working it out. Should they be able to preach or not? How do we deal with it? How do we deal with this? Well, we disagree. Right? And it's not a small matter that is in an aging society, as European society is aging, you have to make a choice about low economic growth, cutting the welfare state. Right now it's only 8 billion pounds or whatever for the NH, but that's, that's pittance. I mean, that's not what's going to be the problem. Or a growing population and greater multicultural heterogeneity, which Britain is an admirable leader in Europe compared to other societies. Right? So we are working it out. It's just we are working out at different stages and in different ways. Problems which modernity poses to all of us. Problems which are posed by internationalization, globalization, and the creation of some embryonic community of meanings and practices, of which I gave some examples. Right? So I think that formulation, they are working it out, is right, rather than the Huntingtonian, which says, it's us against them. And you can say, yeah, 9-11 sort of supports Huntington. I think that's right. 
But U.S.-Chinese relations do not support Huntington. He predicted the same for China and the U.S. So in the social science, you get one right, you get one wrong. Probability is 0.5. That's randomness, okay? Yeah. So some people say it's a good probability for social science, and others say it isn't. I don't want to editorialize about that. So, right. so Huntington has, I think the, the problem is to recognize the plurality and the openness Lewis thinks what went wrong. He has a teleology of history in his mind in which says, they sort of screwed up. We didn't. Well, I'm not so sure who the we is, but if Europe is part of the West, we screwed up big time. The Germans really helped a great deal. But we don't think, Lewis doesn't think in those terms. I think he should. Down here, James. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. Uh, did I miss somebody? I, I, I don't think. So it's all been like uh, faculty and men, so. I have a woman down here. All right. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe you want to defer to Leslie? Okay. I'll, I'll go after, please. Leslie, you're on. Yeah, you're Leslie, on, Leslie. You're on. I, you know, you can blame James. But, um, hello, Peter. It's wonderful to see you in London. Um, I have a very ill-formulated, under-formulated question for you, which is I, I'm sort of looking at your, your reflections, your depictions, your sort of way of capturing Anglo-America, and I, I can't, I'm, I'm not, I'm wondering if you could, I guess, say more about what, what race was doing there for you. Um, and why it was sort of race, rights, and the Anglosphere. And I found myself thinking that maybe you were sort of, that it did come across as sort of race as just being bracketed. Gender's not in there at all, which is interesting to me. And, and I guess the only way through which gender and other categories, that, which to me seem fundamental right now to American politics, certainly, you know, gay, LGBT, gender, races so many different things they sort of only really come into your story through the category of rights so if you could just say a little bit more about why race and rights and the anglosphere and and why did you sort of come down into those discrete categories or how did you condense that or distill that well the discreteness of the categories i grant you is a problem but you've got to have discrete categories to talk and think so i think that's just concepts you need concepts right um, race, I think, comes to me because liberal thought thinks it doesn't draw boundaries. Right? But I think liberal thought always draws boundaries. In fact, any system of thought needs to draw boundaries. And liberalism has a very hard time theorizing boundaries, who's in and who's out. And in the 19th century, liberal, race was constitutive of liberalism. That's what I find so interesting. And by the middle of the 20th century, it isn't. It's a remarkable shift, right? And this I attribute to the rights revolution. This, the sense of that, that, that the center of a civilization can be exchanged for something which it wasn't before. So it's, you know, that is really a historical observation and comes as an analyst of politics saying, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, some people saying it's exogenous shock. I have nothing to say about it. I'd rather endogenize it and saying, well, it comes through political struggle. 
And you could do the same thing for gender. Also in gender, I would say, okay, that would be a rights revolution at the global level. Right? I mean, this is the gender story you can tell in all of these civilizations, which I didn't talk about. So you can say, yeah, the, the civilization of modernity has built into a gender, maybe LGBT, right, uh, and other forms of human rights. But I regard them basically as forms of human rights, not as subcategories. Now you say, well, I don't like that categorization. I'd say that may well be related to the intellectual or the political enterprise, right? So, but it's, you know, race was a self-understood, unquestioned category then, and it still is. I mean, in Japan and China, except when they talk to me, race is not an objectionable category. They talk about each other, China and the Japanese, in racial categories, in ways which would we, we would find very disparaging and very uncomfortable. And they're very self-conscious. And when white people are in the... In the room, we don't talk that way. We don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Right? But the category is alive. It hasn't been eliminated by the Holocaust. Right. Since James is being so accommodating, let me just ask, are there any students out here? We, yes, we have got a woman right here. Uh, <laughs> we'll go here, and then we'll take the guy back there. You'll have to wait. I'm a master's student here, and I just had um, kind of a question when you talked about Germany and Japan and their relationship to Anglo-American civilization. Um, and I thought it's interesting just to think about kind of what has happened, of course, in the 20th century with um, World War II and then military victory and the um, resulting, um, one could say, you know, um, well, post-war reconstruction that was very uh, dominating, imposed, um, and if there's any implication you see in that in terms of partnership with Anglo-American civilization um, from others. I, I didn't quite understand the trailing off. Sorry, other, if, if there's any implications you see in that, that this, others, yes. the two that right, have right. become the partners was post-military with a very much right, imposed... Right, right, right. So, yeah, so you, you're putting your finger on the 21st century and saying, well, the lesson is obviously if you be, beat somebody to pulp, it helps, right? I mean, Germany was dismembered, Japan was not, but basically the war machine was totally... Remember then the Japanese said, okay, we no longer fight war, we now conquer markets, okay? And that became the rise, meaty, the rise of meaty, basically, right? Um, it, so total military victory helped a lot. That's unlikely to happen with Russia and China, right? So of these three mechanisms, you know, military conquest, uh, market penetration, and cultural insinuation, the first one seems highly implausible. On the other, number two and number three are pretty important. We were just talking about the importance of Chinese students subsidizing the LSE and Cornell and lots of other universities over the next generation or two. You're talking about a middle class which can afford and will want to invest in the education of the children of about 1.8 billion people. That's going to have huge implications for all universities. You can fill all universities in Europe just with Chinese students. It's unlikely to happen. But the need for money means the proportion of students will increase a great deal. 
They go back to China, the government can't tell them stories about Europe or the United States. They won't believe them. And they will be part, part of the elite. Well, that's a way of defanging some forms of animosity and vitriolic nationalism, right? Which may not be very powerful in the first 10 or 20 years, but which will be powerful over two or three generations. That's just one tiny example, right? So I wouldn't, and then of course, cultural insinuation. If you go, if you travel through Asia now and Europe, they're very different from what they were 40 years ago. Mass consumption society and individualized choice have come. And in the sense in which young people in China or Germany or Britain live their lives, there's just an enormous amount of commonality with how Americans live their lives, or Brazilians, or South Africans. Right? So that lived experience will have an effect, too, on the vote, on the organization, on the social movements, on the preferences. I wouldn't just the fact that military Congress is unlikely to to dominate or destroy Russia and China the way Germany and Japan were destroyed. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that the other two mechanisms won't be very consequential. They may well be, although not, you know, the next three or five years. It may take time. You know. Civilizational studies always take a longer time period than our presentist public culture. A question from the Fighting Irish, I think, over there. Right. Uh, thank you, Professor, for um, you know, a wonderful talk. It was very interesting. Um, I'm a master's student here at the LSE as well um, in IR. Uh, my question concerns um, you, you, your concept of locating civilizations um, with respect to interna- internationalization and globalization, and I uh, forget the third one, but um, you mentioned that if you had to go back now, you would teach your courses um, along a regionalization aspect of civilizations, and I very much so agree with that. In fact, I've spoken with um, Christopher Coker about this as well, and Patrick Porter and Robert Kaplan, who all think that you know uh, globalization is is a construct um, and, uh, by states and is something that they create and is something that is... Uh, can be stalled, can be stagnated, uh, etc. Right. So, I guess my question um, would be then: um, Do you see uh, global? Do you see this as being a reality? Then, is, is seeing globalization as something that is um, uh, not really constituent of uh, creating and locating these civilizations, and is a sense, of, you know, a construct that is really um, a kind of a fakeade for the internationalization, which I think is what is really going on. But um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and how this perception of globalization um, as being maybe, you know, the neoliberal institution to bring in or tie uh, um, in all these civilizations together, if this is this, uh, this fakeade, how this creates this perception that could potentially hinder okay. civilization. Right. So it would be nice if there was a world of appearance and a world of reality, right? That the region thing is real, real, right? I don't think we, regions are real. Regions are construct. I just wrote a paper on Eurasia. Well, you know, very different ideas about Eurasia. Uh, you write, I mean, there's a whole literature here, you know, on Europe. Oh, it's a big disagreement. That is, regions are constructs, just like globalization or internationalization. So rather than think, I wouldn't want to teach it as the thing, you know, India, East Asia, the way I talked about it. I wouldn't want to do it that way. I would want to look at processes of exchange, encounter, and clash 
And when I gave the clip answer saying that I'm lazy, is to do that intellectually to undergraduates, it's very demanding. I can see writing a book like that. But to make that stick for undergraduates, which have, they have to have pretty clear constructs, pretty clear articles to read, right? And, and it's the first time. I'm not sure I could do it. So it's not, not just laziness why I think this is the... I can pluck the hole, but I don't think I can do it for undergraduates. It's too difficult, right? But to come back to the basic point, I think when you're saying, well, there is a construct here and there's a construct there, the construct, the construction of the civilization of the category is a political process. Huntington is a superb scholar who is utterly and totally honest. On every second page, reminds you, dear reader, I want to fiddle with your head. I want to show you how you should think about the new world after the Cold War. He never lets this go. While most public intellectuals slip this in, they don't tell you what they're up to. Okay? He is utterly straight. The flaw of the book is that he doesn't give you anything new. It's just the old stuff from the 19th century. There's nothing new there. Right? So construction, social construction, is a political project. He or she who wins the battle of concepts wins the war. Is gender a category or a subcategory of human rights? Feminists will never agree with me. They think, no, gender is a separate category. And that's why I said it's part of the political project which you have. Right? For my purposes, I don't have that political project. My pro- project is intellectually understand this international milieu. Right? So therefore, I'm willing to make that trade-off. It is always a political choice. All right, James. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, uh, James Morrison, I, I teach you in uh, we'll make this international relations. Question. Okay, so my, you mentioned the long telegram, George Kennan's long telegram. So I, you know, sort of, it's long, but not that long. So I, I looked over it um, quickly again just now, and I, I'm not quite sure how it fits in with your 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 story or how you would type it, given your your framework. So where does it fit into your framework? So on the one hand, we have I think. You could say Knightian uncertainty that he expresses about the durability of the Soviet project. Um, he also then, you know, his version of containment looks a lot like circulatory power. It's not overt coercion. It's this constantly shifting series of points. This kind of intricate dance where you let the Soviets say face, but at the same time get them to do what you want and so on. So it seems like that would, would sort of fit with your circulatory power. But boy, he really seems to think very much in Huntingtonian terms about the West and talks about the Western world. Right. And the Russians and the Russian mindset and so on. So I mean, maybe this is not an interesting point, but um, does he fit into your framework? Does he fit in as maybe one foot in, one foot out? Um, do you disagree with him? Um, and so on. Yeah. So I mean, what's quite remarkable about Kennan is that he really knew and loved Russia. Right. That's really important. So he didn't take an externalist view of Russia. He understood how Russia worked. And he is a man in power. That is, that memorandum will be read in the White House. So you should think about that, right? Uh, my hunch is I haven't reread it in the last half hour. Okay, you have a certain information advantage <laughs> there. But my hunch is that he chose concepts that were politically intelligible to his audience, mm-hmm. and infused in his analysis of the nuance which Huntington doesn't get. 
So I think he was thinking, you know, in some ways he was a very traditional thinker, as always. He was informed by Spikeman. Okay. And Spikeman was informed by geopolitical theories of the previous 60 years. That's how the Cold War replicates. I mean, we always say geopolitics is a terrible discipline. You know, it's all Nazi-infected. No. You know, McKinnon, Mahan, I mean, that, that's mm. not Nazi-infected. That's, that's homegrown by liberals, right? Uh, so I think he, he represented that, and that became the strategic vision. You think about the rimland of Eurasia should be on our side, and he has quite a subtle understanding about how you do this. You know, yeah, now that we've bashed them, how do we get them on our side? Wonderful book written by... Um, John Montgomery, who was a professor at Harvard, working with the U.S. Army, uh, doing all these interviews. They had 25 volumes of data sitting in the Johns Hopkins Library, and nobody has ever looked at them, except Montgomery, who writes a little book, 150 pages, with the title, Forced to be Free. But it's in a condensation of a massive amount of data from the 1945, 46, 47, 48. Right? Uh, Cannon was attuned to that kind of subtlety. Right. So I th my hunch is that the audience and the sophistication of the mind pulled them in different directions that you probably will find it reflected in. You know. Huntington wanted to write for the public. He wasn't going to write for scholars. So he got killed among scholars in the United States. Not at Chingua. Okay. So many of the Huntingtonian themes resonate very deeply in Saudi Arabia, in China, not in Japan, but... Uh, uh, so, so this is a very complicated project intellectually. I come back to the Irish uh, uh, intervention that is, it's a political project. Thinking about the categories is essential. It's really central for, for how you frame and develop such an analysis. And with Huntington, it becomes a self-defeating proposition. The clash which you want to prevent, which he wanted to prevent, Okay, is reinforced its probability by the books he writes. And I've had it from firsthand from former students of his who were in workshops with him said he had, in fact, rejected his own book. But that's the discussion I would have liked to have written. Peter, I want to thank you for a terrific presentation. Thanks so much for coming home here to the LSC. Please join me in that.